The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. This episode, we return to the Mongols and continue the story of Chinggis Khan. For a quick recap, the Eurasian steppes were inhabited by many different nomadic cultures. Towards the end of the 12th century and beginning of the 13th century, it was the Mongols under the leadership of Temujin, who later became known as Chinggis Khan, or Great Ruler, who had conquered and absorbed most of the tribes, enlarging the Mongol army. In 1206, Temujin was proclaimed Chinggis Khan, the Great Ruler, thus cementing his control of the confederation. Let's start by talking about that confederation and what his army would have looked like. The common misconception is that the Mongols were a vicious, unorganized horde. Well, they could definitely be vicious, we'll get to that in a bit, but they were far from unorganized. In fact, the Mongols were highly trained in military manners. Chinggis Khan was a military genius able to use these highly trained soldiers, and equally importantly, Chinggis Khan appointed generals based on competence. He had brilliant generals that were able to operate on their own, and in the case of his general Subutai, even a more brilliant military mind than Chinggis Khan himself. Chinggis Khan's system was to organize his army based on a decimal system. A unit of 10 soldiers was called an Auravt, 10 Auravt was a Zut, 10 Zut was a Minkan, and 10 Minkad, the plural of Minkan, composed a Tumen. There were leaders at each level that reported to leaders at the next level. If you haven't been doing the math, a Tumen was 10,000 soldiers. Despite these decimal divisions, a Tumen was generally the atomic unit of the Mongolian army. Comparing to the American army, for example, a Tumen would be something like a division. A general would typically be assigned about three Tumen for a given campaign, although there were cases where generals were assigned more or fewer, including just one Tumen. Don't worry about the details. What you should get out of this is three things. One, the Mongol army was very structured. Two, the Mongol army had highly talented command staff. And three, the Mongol army was agile and could be easily divided off. These three facts combined meant that the Mongols could be in multiple places at once, whether that meant on a single campaign or to maintain multiple campaigns or wars, almost always to the surprise of their foe. Okay, but how did they fight? How did they train? The first thing to note about their training that I mentioned last episode is that, in a sense, they were always training. They lived most of their lives on horses. It was said a Mongol horse archer could stand on the saddle of a moving horse and face backwards to shoot at a foe behind them, then jump back into the saddle. This is impressive, but also makes sense that someone who spends almost their whole lives, even sleeping, eating, on horseback. Mongols were also master archers. They often carried two bows, one for shorter range, one for longer range, and a scimitar or sword or something along those lines. They were highly coordinated as groups and could send out volleys, then right out of range of enemy archers. Part of the tactical training came in the form of great hunts that were organized by Mongol leaders called a nurge. These nurge hunts could last a month or more and would involve Mongols encircling areas of forests to trap any animals. Such trapped animals would often be driven to an opening in the encirclement that the Mongols would create to have an easy shot at the hunted animals. The Mongols would employ these same strategies and tactics against later human foes. We're going to shift over to the wars and military campaigns that Chinggis Khan got himself into. I need to give a caveat first. 
It's difficult to convey Chinggis's wars in a strictly linear manner, because from this point on until his death, he would almost always have multiple wars going on, some of which would not be resolved until after his death, such as the campaign against the Jin of northern China. While the campaign against the Jin began in 1211, it ended in 1231, four years after the 1227 death of Chinggis Khan. But in 1206, Chinggis Khan's own army also posed a bit of a problem. He had a very large, restless army, and he had made some brilliant moves to keep it stable, such as splitting up subjugated tribes and mixing them among the Mongols, preventing the ability to rise up as a group. But this large army had a lot of violent energy pent up, and he knew that if he didn't direct it against something, he risked internal conflict. So let's look at the geopolitical situation in the area at the time Temujin was proclaimed Chinggis Khan. To Chinggis Khan's south was China. China was an obvious target. China was rich in resources and treasure, and the Chinese dynasties often interfered in nomadic tribal politics. By the time Chinggis Khan was proclaimed Great Khan at the 1206 Kurultai, China had three important kingdoms facing the Mongols. Settled in northwest China was the Sisia, also known as the Western Xia, also known as the Tangut Empire. The Tangut people associated with the Tangut Empire were related to Tibetan culture. The rest of northern China was occupied by the Jin dynasty, a dynasty formed by an earlier nomadic horse tribe, the Jurchens, invading northern China and taking northern China from the Song dynasty. Southern China would be occupied by the remains of the Song dynasty. To Chinggis's north were tribes that lived in the southern Siberian forests and also posed a potential source of resistance, known as the Hui Yin Irgen, which meant the forest people. I'm going to be going over Chinggis Khan's various campaigns separately, but keep in mind what I said earlier that this won't all necessarily be in chronological order. What's important to understand even more than the actual dates is that Chinggis Khan was more than comfortable having multiple wars going on at the same time, and his success shows that his confidence was not unfounded. Indeed, besides these entities I've mentioned, I'll be bringing up another one in a bit. Let's start with the campaign against the Hoi Yin Irgen, the Siberian forest people. While they weren't attacking or invading Mongol territory, Chinggis Khan still considered them hostile. He sent a lieutenant to demand their subjugation, and when the lieutenant was held hostage by the Hoi Yin Irgen, Chinggis Khan sent a larger force under the command of his longtime friend Borakul out to attack the forest people. Borakul was ambushed and killed. Chinggis Khan was ready to lead a force himself to take out the Hoi Yin Irgen, but was talked out of it by his officers. Instead, he sent his loyal officer, Dorbe Dokshin. Dokshin was far more careful than his predecessor had been, and managed to use deer trails to navigate and sneak up on the Hoi Yin Irgen. We are told by the secret history of the Mongols that during a feast the Hoi Yin Irgen were holding, Mongols burst into the feast as if through smoke holes in the tents. Chinggis Khan would send his son Jochi to finish off the rest of the forest tribes of Siberia. By 1207, the Siberian forest peoples were eliminated as a threat. More to the point, his northern border was now secure. Okay, so why did he go after the CCR? Well, in 1203, when Chinggis Khan was still defeating rival tribes and working his way to the eventual Kurultai he would hold proclaiming him Great Khan, one of the leaders of a rival tribe, the Karaites, fled to CCR lands. It was such a hassle that the CCR would kick him out of their lands, but to Chinggis Khan, the damage was done. By the time he was made Great Khan in 1206, 
the campaign against the Sisia had begun. The campaign began by simple raids into Sisia territory. The Sisia forces, also skilled archers, would meet the Mongols on the battlefield and be defeated soundly, so the Sisia strategy from then on was to hole up in fortified cities. This was a problem for the Mongols. They could easily defeat any army on the field, but the Mongols at this point were not prepared for the kind of engineering required for siege warfare. This would change dramatically, as they would acquire captured Chinese engineers, but that wasn't until later. Anyway, in 1209, Chinggis Khan personally led a large force into Sisiya territory with the intention of ending the war. Again, any force sent against them on the battlefield was easily wiped out. But the Sisiya holed up in the fortress city of Zhengxing, the modern-day city of Yinchuan, China. Lacking siege engineers, Chinggis Khan was able to display his creativity and genius at the siege of Zhengxing. Chinggis Khan had noticed that the Huanghu, the Yellow River, swelled at this time of year. He had his men build a giant dam to reroute the water towards the city of Zhengxing. The water quickly eroded the earthen walls and flooded the city. Thousands of people, probably mostly civilians, tragically drowned and the city was effectively left in ruins. Chinggis Khan had miscalculated, however, and the dam his own soldiers built broke and ended up flooding the Mongol camp. But this display of creativity and ferocious persistence was enough to convince the CCR to make peace with the Mongols, and by 1210, the CCR campaign was over. Chinggis Khan's campaign against the Jin is a bit more complicated, because Chinggis Khan would not live to see the end of this campaign. Nevertheless, it's an important campaign. So let's start with the why of the campaign. The reasons for this campaign are probably the easiest to understand. The Jin were the greatest threat to the Mongols at this point. The Jin had always been a threat to any power on the Central Asian Plateau, as the Jin would often ally with one tribe over another, creating politically unstable situation in the steppes. And historically, anyone who was in control of northern China had played such complex politics, politics that in the West would be called Byzantine politics, as the Byzantine Empire often played the same game with various horse archer tribes that would end up north of the empire. And again, the Jin Empire was rich. Outside of political reasons, there were strong economic reasons to take on the Jin. In fact, Chinggis Khan didn't actually need a reason to attack the Jin. They gave him one. In 1210, the Jin sent a delegation demanding the Mongols subject the Jin as a vassal state. Chinggis Khan, perhaps unsurprisingly, spat on the ground and took off. In 1211, he held another cruel tie. If you remember last episode, he held a cruel tie in 1206 to legitimize his rule over the Mongols. This time, he wanted to shore up support for a campaign against the Jin. He knew this would be a huge endeavor, and he had to make sure he had full support of the many soldiers under him. He got the support, and in 1211, he attacked the Jin. From the start, the Jin were on the defensive. While the Jin were able to win some battles against the Mongols, the Jin were fighting a losing war. The Mongols would raid villages, taking resources, eventually sieging the Jin capital of Zhengdu, modern-day Beijing. Progress was steady but slow, partially because the Mongols didn't have proper siege weapons, yet. In fact, over the Jin campaign, they would force Chinese engineers into their service and would develop advanced siege craft, which made them much more effective at taking cities in later wars and campaigns. By 1214, the Mongols had scored some huge strategic victories, gaining territories such as Manchuria, 
which was the homeland of the Jinn. Remember, the Jinn were formerly from the nomadic tribes of the Jurchens. The Mongols also captured valuable resources, such as the breeding areas of the imperial horses and, of course, the horses in those areas. So by 1214, the Jinn understood that they were fighting a losing war, and they agreed to become a tributary state of the Mongols. Now, it should be noted that the Jin had a new emperor at this point because a Jin general had killed the previous one and installed his nephew. This might have helped Chinggis Khan believe that the Jin were turning over a new leaf, metaphorically. The Mongols started heading back north, but they wouldn't make it far before turning back. A couple things happened. First, a rogue Jin general wanted to ambush the Mongols. The emperor managed to stop this, but the very threat of this no doubt heightened tensions. But what really drove Chinggis Khan to turn around was the fact that the emperor moved the Jin capital from Zhengdu to Kaifeng, further south. The message this sent to the Mongols was that the Jin were putting themselves in a more strategically defensible position, which meant that the Jin were planning on continuing the war. So the war went on. In 1215, the Mongols successfully captured Zhengdu, and over the next eight years would capture several provinces in northern China. Chinggis Khan, however, would not be there for that full eight years. In 1219, his attention would be diverted towards another direction. In 1219, events would conspire to lead Chinggis Khan on a campaign to the west. And now we get the Khwarezmian campaign. What campaign, you say? I didn't mention this one earlier for a few reasons. For one, it started later than the others, running at its hottest from 1219 to 1220. For another, the brutality of this campaign was unmatched even by Mongol standards. But there's another reason that sets this campaign apart, and that is the fact that it brought the Mongols west, further west than Central Asia, into the Dar al-Islam, the House of Islam, referring to the vast area from Spain to Iran that fell under rule by Islamic heads of state. This campaign introduced the Mongols to the Western world, and lastly, this campaign came as a bit of a surprise to Chinggis Khan himself. We need to go through some extremely brief Islamic history here to set the context. For centuries, Islam had been controlled, nominally at least, by a single dynasty, the Abbasid Caliphate. By the 12th century, the Caliphate had been taken over by a Turkish Sultanate. That central rule had eroded, and various smaller Islamic states had begun to form. One of these states was the Khwarezmian state which by the time Chinggis Khan was proclaimed Khan in 1206, lay roughly over the areas of modern-day Iran and Afghanistan. Uh, this place was also called Khorasan uh, back then. At this time, the Khwarezmian Empire was large and appeared to be powerful, although it was facing some internal strife. We will never know if the empire would have managed to gain stability because in a mere two years, the Mongols wiped it off the map, in some cases literally. Here's how it all went down. In 1218, Chinggis Khan had sent a Mongol party across the Khwarezmian border to chase after an enemy general. By now you can see that this is kind of a theme. The Mongols didn't just spend time and resources taking out strategic static targets. They also went after enemy command, sometimes chasing enemy generals for thousands of miles. At this time, the Khwarezmian Empire was under the Shah, and Shah is an Iranian word that's something along the lines of emperor, was under the Shah Allah ad-Din Muhammad II. Now, all evidence suggests that, in fact, Chinggis Khan had no intention originally to go after the Khwarezmian Empire. 
While the Mongols could easily wage multiple wars, it didn't mean that they set out to wage war with everyone on the planet just because they're there. Experts today strongly believe that all Chinggis Khan wanted from Khwarezmia was the freedom to pursue enemy generals and also to open potentially lucrative trade relations with the Khwarezmians. But you also have to look at this from the perspective of Shah Muhammad II. He had just witnessed Chinggis Khan conquer huge swaths of the east. Seeing Mongols enter his territory probably scared him. Even more, his men had skirmished with the Mongols and apparently were very unsettled with what they saw in these skirmishes, as well as how quickly the Mongols disappeared completely. Nevertheless, Chinggis Khan sent a delegation to open trade. The local governor who received the trade delegation had the delegation murdered and kept all of the trade items. Chinggis Khan demanded retribution, and Shah Muhammad II made the fateful decision to back his local governor instead of giving in to the Mongols' requests, although by now it's safe to say they were probably demands. Even worse, they seem to have treated the Mongol ambassadors horribly, beheading one and having the head sent back with the other two. That was the last straw for Chinggis Khan. In 1219, between 100,000 and 150,000 Mongols crossed the Jaksartes River modern-day Daria, to invade the Khwarezmian Empire. Chinggis Khan devoted his full attention to this campaign and was also accompanied by his sons, who by this time were generals and leading their own soldiers. He left a commander and troops to carry on the campaign against the Jin, but his focus was to the west. The Khwarezmian army, while large, proved ineffective against Mongol tactics. What also surprised the Khwarezmians was how quickly the Mongols could be in one place, then another. This wasn't just because the Mongols were remarkably mobile. Chinggis Khan had divided his army into three pieces, one under him and his son Tolui, one under his trusted general Jebe, and one under his son Jochi, who you might remember was probably not his biological son, but he still raised as his own. The Shah would hole up in a city thinking he had weeks to prepare, only to wake up the next morning with Mongols at the gates. The campaign was vicious even by the standards of the Mongols, I'm going to spare you the gory details, and trust me, they are gory. But suffice to say, millions of people were killed on these campaigns. Millions more were displaced or taken into slavery. One famous example of a refugee from the Mongols is a man who contemporaries knew as Muhammad bin Muhammad bin al-Husayn al-Khatibi al-Balki al-Bakri, but who we more commonly know as the Persian poet Rumi. When Rumi was a child, his Central Asian home was invaded by the Mongols and his family forced to flee to the West. Because of this, Rumi became well-traveled and met scholars that he might otherwise have not. The toll was not just taken on the people, but on the physical structures of the cities as well. Ancient cities that had been the centers of trade and lay on the Silk Road for thousands of years, such as Bukhara, Merv, Nishapur, and Samarkand, were utterly destroyed. Even when they tried to rebuild, they would never fully recover their former glory, with the exception of perhaps Samarkand. I said wiped off the map earlier, and in some cases that was literally true. We are told that Chinggis Khan diverted a river to completely cover the birthplace of Shah Muhammad II. He also ordered generals Jebe and Subutai to pursue the Shah. The Shah had never had another calm moment in his life. The Mongols were perpetually on his tail, and while his final resting place was an island in the Caspian Sea, the Mongols had apparently been so close that Mongol arrows were barely missing his boat as he sailed away. 
He died shortly after making it to the island of pleurisy, which is an issue that affects the lungs. The war against the Khorasmians was effectively over in 1220, less than two years after it started. Shah Muhammad II's son, Jalal ad-Din, managed to hold out against the Mongols until 1231, long after the war was effectively over in 1220. But he was always on the run, always fighting a retreating battle. And in the end, he was betrayed by supposed allies. After defeating the Khorasmian Empire and reforming his army, Chinggis Khan split it now into two. He would lead the contingent that would head back east, raiding Afghanistan and northern India. His generals Jebe and Subutai would head further west, into Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan, as well as the genuine port of Kaffa in Crimea. By the way, Kaffa would make its way back into the history books over a hundred years later, as Kaffa would be the source of the Genoese ship that launched carrying Black Plague to Europe in 1347. On the way back, Jebe and Subutai encountered the Rus and sent emissaries to various Slavic princes asking for peace. The emissaries were killed. This seems to be a common mistake Mongol enemies make. At this time, Kiev was nominally the capital of Rus. I say nominally because there wasn't a wide Russian empire at this time. But Kiev was the center of the culture of people who at the time were known as the Rus. The Kievan prince sent out a force of 80,000 to confront the Mongols, and unsurprisingly was defeated at what is now known as the Battle of Kalka River. The Rus were lucky for now. Jebe and Subutai were recalled by Chinggis Khan. The Mongols would be back with vengeance in Russia. But that is going to have to wait until next episode. For now, this mission proved to be useful in terms of reconnaissance, as the Mongols learned of places ripe for conquering in the West, such as Hungary, a place perfect for the Mongols to settle. Chinggis Khan returned to the East in 1226. He continued the fight against the Jin and took up a new war against the Sisiya. It seems that the Sisiya, which had been a vassal empire to the Mongols in 1219, refused to send help to the Mongols on the Khwarezmian campaign. Furthermore, they allied with the Jin against the Mongols. Chinggis Khan would capture important cities, and even though a newly installed emperor tried to surrender, he was killed by Chinggis Khan, and the campaign continued. On August 25, 1227, Eight days after starting the final campaign against the CCA, Chinggis Khan died. We aren't sure exactly what he died of, and some reports suggest it was illness, or wounds from battle, or falling from his horse, or even bubonic plague. But one thing we are sure of, and that is that we have no idea where he was buried. We are told that he was buried in a secret area in Mongolia, and that everyone involved in the burial was killed by a team of assassins. Then, and I'm not making this up, Another team of assassins killed that team of assassins. But unknown burial or not, his legacy was strong when he died, and as we will see next episode, it would be his descendants who would control the Mongol Empire. Chinggis Khan was dead. He had conquered anyone who stood opposed to him and formed the largest empire in human history. But who would take over this vast empire formed by one man? What would happen to the Mongol Empire after the death of its progenitor? What happened to the military campaigns that were ongoing at the time of Chinggis Khan's death? Tune in next time to find out. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on the Stream of Time.